What's up, everybody? So I want to let you know that the Alpha Brain Golden Ticket Sweepstakes are still going on. And that's just a rad opportunity not only to stock up on your Alpha Brain or give Alpha Brain a try. Because if you haven't tried Alpha Brain, it's definitely one of those tools that's different than any stimulant you've had and gets your brain firing in an absolutely different way. And that's what our clinical research has shown, and that's what everybody who's tried it. You know, we've sold over a million bottles of Alpha Brain, and the results are in. It works. It's awesome. So this is a great opportunity, though, because if you get the Golden Ticket Sweepstakes, everybody is a winner, and there's a bunch of cool shit that we're giving away, from kettlebell sets to different other products, to discounts. Every single person is going to be a winner if you go to the golden ticket sweepstakes so check it out on it.com slash golden ticket and then enter the code and fill in the entry form there's going to be a grand prize for one of you which is going to be a trip out here to austin and on hq so you'll be able to come hang at the hq and do all the awesome on it things so definitely check it out go to on it.com slash golden dash ticket and get your 30 count or 90 count bottle of alpha brain Dr. Anthony Bosis of NYU was one of the principal investigators on some of the most significant psilocybin trials ever to date. I got to sit down with him at the Psychedelic Science Conference and go deep into his specialty and body of work. So four years ago, I got a chance to listen to your talk. Really didn't know you, didn't know too much about the work. And I heard you say that what you were able to accomplish in your studies of psilocybin for end-of-life palliative care, you were able to accomplish things that would normally take you several years of psychotherapy in the matter of a few sessions. And, you know, I was aware of some of the personal transformative effects of the psychedelics, but that was in at the time when the research was just coming out really strongly in favor. And a lot has gone on from then, but I wanted to go back to those moments where, you know, you've been in this field, dedicated your life to it. And now all of a sudden you had an amazingly powerful tool at your disposal to start to work with. So, uh, did I say that a couple of years ago? You said <laughs> that's, that. That's a good quote. Um, yeah, we, we've been privileged. I've been privileged to work with people with, so the study you're referring to is a study with, uh, patients with cancer, uh, many with advanced cancer, some in remission, uh, some end of life, and many have passed away since our study concluded. But the main criteria for inclusion in the psilocybin study, and I'll explain the protocol in a few minutes, um, was that they had a very significant amount of anxiety, existential, spiritual distress, diagnosable by a DSM-5 psychiatric classification system. Um, Did that yield a number of some sort? A lot of these things yield a kind of a, a rating on a scale? or No, you said I endorsed that diagnosis. Have, okay. enough, have enough symptoms to endorse that diagnosis. It was called a skid. It's an interview. That's done. Um, and, uh, you know, backing up, I, I've worked in palliative care for a number of years. It's been an interest of mine professionally. Uh, I think for all of us, it's a personal interest. What happens when we die? Sure. And it's been uh, with me uh, from an early, early age. I was interested in death and dying and existential distress. So um, to participate in this study and to see the results was was something. And I hope we get um, deeper into it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's uh, you've so you had, you know, you were working with people one way. And then in the trial, you got to you know, utilize a lot of the knowledge base that you'd forged from effective methods of communication and then, but doing it under a much more favorable environment and an environment where certainly the wind, it had to feel like the wind was really at your back at this point. I mean, you were making progress. Like what was that? 
Did you have an aha moment where you just saw breakthroughs happening with specific individuals? Were you like, whoa? We did. Um, my first few people they work with were profoundly powerfully transformative experiences that that's been published and we've written about and I've spoken about publicly uh, and these and these participants were generous enough to allow us to use their narratives which I have over the years um, to backpedal a bit you, you made a good point in terms of building upon prior knowledge mm-hmm. in two ways we're standing upon the shoulders of earlier uh, uh, folks in the field. One is standing upon the earlier research with psilocybin and LSD with end-of-life patients in the 50s and 60s um, and returning to a body of literature and clinical research protocol that was uh, ended dramatically and suddenly in the mid-60s, early 70s with sociocultural changes. So we have that to to lean on, and we'll get into that, I'm I'm certain. Um, And then in terms of palliative care, yeah, there are meaning-based psychotherapies. There, There are a way we speak with people or try to um, be with people who might be dying. Uh, so in terms of breakthrough moments, those sessions are something that is potentially incredible to experience. Um, the second person I work with, uh, who I have spoken about, his, his profile was, uh, he was profiled in the New Yorker article that Michael Pollan did a while ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was a young gentleman in his fifties. That's young when you're our age, right? He's, sure. He's young. And uh, had a very um, difficult uh, cancer, and metastatic, um, passed away soon after the study was over. And had an experience that was just incredible. Um, and what he, 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 he let us use his narrative, his, his journal entry, and uh, he spoke about the experience of love that recalibrated how he died. Uh, literally talking about love over and over. That despite his suffering, his cancer, and he had a lovely wife. He has a lovely wife, Lisa. Um, he was not afraid of death and that this experience of being immersed in eternal love, to use his language, was what uh, helped change him. Sure. And that's some words for a scientist to hear, right? <laughs> I mean, this is a day at the office. And and he spoke about um, being immersed in kind of an eternal, timeless love, you know, beyond personal love. There's a personal love and there's love for self. Sure. And then there's this capital larger, L cosmic yeah. love. And I always like to use the word agape from the, the Greek. This kind of divine, you know, um, almost people describe it as a substance uh, of existence. And to hear that is just incredible. So he, um, that was a aha moment. Like we're on the right track. Um, <laughs> I'd say. Uh, there's the people who are suffering tremendously. And um, it's a gift to get, to have these people uh, experience this. And, to, um, you know, one of the main pieces, how I, how I think it's transformative is that they identify less with the physical body. Mm-hmm. So if your body is failing and you're dying and this vehicle we have is, is fading away and beginning to stop, to connect with something more enduring that might not stop when the body stops or to connect with something outside of biology is consciousness outside of biology is what we call non-local consciousness Mm -hmm. to connect with something like that um is a profound gift if you're dying Um, it's a profound gift if you're not any of us exactly to know that i'm not i'm not this body i'm not this cancer yeah this body has cancer but i might be something different and we will talk more about that 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 experience of peeling away the layers that could happen in these experiences of identity and of uh, 
of this sense of reality and connect it with something more timeless. And that's a profound way for me to talk even as a scientist, right? Oh, undoubtedly. In a medical school. I had that experience, fortunately, which set me off on my path. I was a pretty committed atheist when I was growing up. I had a very impactful visit to uh, Italy in which I got to tour the Dungeon of the Inquisition and saw some of the most horrific things and concepts that had ever filled my mind at that point. Mm -hmm. 11-year-old kid, you know all of these torture devices done in the name of the church and in the name of the, the faith. And I'd seen some other downstream negative effects, things that didn't make sense to me from, you know, organized religious structures. And so I, you know, grew angry. I said, this is unjust. And, and I kind of followed that path, I was reading some Hitchens at the time. And then I went out and went to the mountains of New Mexico and experienced psilocybin and then felt my body melt away and this thing that remained, which I would now call consciousness, I didn't really have a name for it. I just looked back and said, oh shit, I got to rethink some things here. You know, I, I didn't quite have it right. Some of my criticisms maybe had merit, but there's a whole other side here that I'm ignoring. And that really, that moment recalibrated my life. That was that one, you know, fork in the road, Aubrey, having done that and Aubrey not having done that. And it's a completely different life. And I'm in completely sure that it's a much better path having that piece of knowledge, knowing that I'm more than just this vehicle, more than the emotions, more than the pain, more than whatever else is happening or the pleasure for that matter. I'm something mm -hmm. else beyond that. And Did it change how you view traditions, religions, and spiritual frameworks? No doubt, because it opened me up to, okay, maybe they got some things wrong, but they may have got some things very right. And at that point, having this mixed bag rather than you're totally wrong, like, oh, okay. And it allowed me to open my eyes and then go deeper and find these w wisdoms and these really powerful messages and stories that are at the heart of really, as far as I can tell, all religions that I've studied. They are, and it's a great point. Um, and a lot of bad things have been done in the name of religion over the centuries. Too many, yeah. And it's, uh, you know, I, say, I speak about this often because it's, that becomes the, uh, the face of how people view religion. And as you poignantly pointed out, um, there's another side to it. Yeah. And if we look at the mystic core of all the religions, there is a mystic core, what Huxley called the perennial philosophy, Aldous Huxley. Mm-hmm. Uh, and although they are, let's say, the six main religions, the three Abrahamic religions, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, and the three Eastern, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Taoism, though there are profoundly different frameworks and symbolic architecture for each one, there is this common mystic core that the perennialists speak about yep. uh, that we measure in our studies. So our studies use a, a scale called the mystical experience scale. And the criteria are a sense of unity, profound interconnectedness of all living things and, and, and things, a sense of transcendence, transcending this body, this time-space, uh, sacredness, ineffability, words fall short, uh, uh, sacredness. So those are at the core of, of the of religions. And each one has its incredibly beautiful tapestry of language. I mean, the Upanishads and Hinduism. Mm -hmm. The Tao of Taoism and the way it describes and the Ansaf of, of Judaism and the Kabbalah, um, you know how the Buddhists describe no self, the nature of self and no self, and Sunyata of nothingness. There's even a strain of very important 
school within mystic Christianity of what's called the apophatic theology. And these are the early Christian mystics who spoke about the nothingness at the heart of being, very much like the Buddhists and the Zen mystics. Um, different language, same experience. The nothingness filled with the everythingness. You know, and they speak about it in a beautiful way. Um, but you're right, that gets kind of uh, buried beneath centuries of other stuff. Yeah, I mean, you look at the very core and you see multiple paths up the same mountain. Yeah. Beautiful rot paths with different foliage and different botanicals and different ways and frameworks that you look, different stained glass peering, you know, by which you see the sun. But then, you know, you then look at what's been piled on top of that and then it yeah. can be sometimes monstrous or sometimes misleading. But the core problem with when that happens is when the ties to the direct experiential connection get severed, when you don't have a religion that leads you back to being able to show, not tell. And I think that's the revolution in the Renaissance that we're having is now we're bringing that back. Like this isn't a pathway for a select few to find it and talk about it. Like we want to bring everybody through and yeah. let them figure it out and then whatever interpretation all of the different interpretations and in classical you can appreciate or choose one or two that you resonate with you know something does seem afoot there's some seems something's be, afoot there's some to be kind of a spiritual activism taking place and it's interesting uh but yeah these i mean religions are frameworks they're portals to connect with the sacred yeah. people often ask why they need one no you don't need one you could have that experience in the woods and a variety of ways with nature but they're um, helpful frameworks to connect with the sacred that have been around for millennia. They're the earliest attempts to, to describe the transcendent experience. Mm -hmm. We have other models as well. We have science and a lot of models. Um, and I've yet to meet a religious scholar or a profoundly spiritual person, including religious leaders, who don't say, at some point you even go beyond the religion. Yeah. I mean, the old famous, if you see the Buddha on the road, kill, kill him. <laughs> That they're frameworks to connect, but ultimately you also go beyond the framework to the that transcendence, the ineffable. And but that's been lost in many ways. But I, I think you're onto something. I think something is afoot. We'll see if in 50 years that was true or not. <laughs> well, you're 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 putting you're putting shoes on the afoot by doing some of the studies that you're doing. I mean, this is. Um, you know, and I know that there's a limited amount that you can get into because the study is ongoing. But right now you're um, preparing a study to take religious leaders and offer them an opportunity to take psilocybin and measure the results. What was the idea behind this and what are you looking to see and measure? Yeah, so that's a great study. Um, and I, I want to come back to the cancer study, too, with end of yeah, life sure. stress and, and, and death and consciousness. Um, but so there's a very well-known study, 1962 called the Marsh, it was a, called the Good Friday Experiment. I'm sure you know about that. Mm -hmm. It took place in Boston. And uh, Walter Penke, who was a minister and a psychiatrist, had uh, done this study under the supervision of Timothy Leary. And he um, had recruited 10 theology students at Marsh Seminary in Boston to take psilocybin, and 10 took placebo. And the 10 who took psilocybin, the majority of them, scored very high or very high on the mystical experience measures that we still use today. Uh, and it was, it was called back then, quote, the, the most remarkable experiment in the psychology of religion. Uh, and he concluded, Walter Penke, that these experiences with a compound 
were indistinguishable from naturally occurring mystical experiences found throughout the ages by mystics and saints that have been written about in poetry and all the great books of of our uh, of humanity. Um, it was an incredible study, and then, of course, everything came to a halt yeah. a couple of years later. And Walter Pankey tragically died in a scuba diving accident, very young, uh, after a uh, number of years after that study. So this study we're doing now is an FDA-approved study at Johns Hopkins at NYU, uh, enlisting religious leaders, ordained clergy and rabbis, and hopefully people from each tradition, Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism, Islam, to participate in this very controlled study where they could have the opportunity to have a psilocybin experience or psilocybin-generated mystical experience. There is no mm -hmm. one psilocybin experience. Right. There isn't even a psychedelic experience. That word gets misused a lot. People say a psychedelic experience. There isn't one psychedelic experience. It's true. Um, you have a hundred people as psychedelic, you have a hundred different experiences. There is a mystical experience, there's a spiritual experience generated by the use of a psychedelic, but there isn't a psychedelic experience, and the word gets used all the time. And so we're hoping to have them help us, help science, map out the, the landscape, the phenomenology of mystical experience. So this is called basic science, or clinical translational sciences, using these experiences and this medicine for clinical outcome change. So in the cancer study, could we harness the experience of mystical experience that we're wired for, we'll come back to that, or are we wired for meaning and why, to help alleviate end-of-life distress? We use it with alcoholism to help stop drinking. It's been used in smoking cessation at Johns Hopkins. Mm -hmm. This is not a, a pathological cohort, a sample. These are professional, healthy religious leaders. Basic science tries to understand the, the nature of something. So they're helping us, through their experience, kind of map out what is this. It's fascinating. I mean, how will they write about it within the framework of their own specific religion? Will they describe it in different ways? Will we see a common ground, which I, I imagine we will, a common essence, this mystic core? Um, at the end, could they uh, uh, could we could it be interspiritually uh, enhancing in some way? So, that, are you going to get them all? Are you going to get them all together at some point after their experiences? And that's not part of the protocol now, but it's something we're we're, we're talking about. And everyone has said they would they would participate so far. So we could add a, an addendum at the end of the study if they wanted to. Uh, they'd have to waive some their own confidentiality to do that. But if they wanted to to have the opportunity to be with the others and, ha and talk about the conversation. That would be stunning if uh, they can do Truly. that. So, um, so it's, it's almost really like you think about, you know, if these things had been more available mainstream, you think about the greatest minds. Because even with myself, as my mind has evolved and I've gotten more knowledge, my ability to form more interesting novel connections between fields of study that I've had and the capability of my basically my hardware to form really cool new ideas and thoughts just increases as my my knowledge base increases. You look at the greatest minds that have been around, and these are some of the greatest spiritual minds, and then it's enhancing their innate ability to communicate with different parts of their brain, as well as the mystical experience. It's taking the best and then supercharging them to mm. see what they can find in the ether, and that's incredibly interesting, just as it would be interesting to find the, the put the greatest quantum physicists you know, and yeah. offer them some of these psychedelics and see like if what they can see, if they decide to look inside, uh, 
you know, an atom and, and yeah, with their knowledge base and what they're able to form. Cause it's, it's an interplay between yourself and then the medicine. Neither one is necessarily dominant over the other. And so the results of this could be really, truly groundbreaking. And it's not the medicine per se, right? These are no. drug studies per se. Mm -hmm. So every drug study that exists in America, every drug study for the most part, you get the desired effect while you take the drug. Taking a daily, desired effect, lower yeah. blood pressure, reduce depression, whatever the intention of the drug was. These are more like experience studies facilitated by one use of a, of a compound. They take the psilocybin once in a cancer study. It's out of the system in a number of hours. The half-life is relatively short. They go home that night back in ordinary consciousness. But it's that experience that's transformative. Um, which we seem to be worried for naturally. I mean, throughout time, this happened also spontaneously. So one of the unanswered questions beyond my, they often joke around, beyond my pay grade is, you know, are we worried for meaning? Why, of course. Um, why aren't these experiences more common naturally, spontaneously? This is interesting. Why do these, you know, this mushroom, this fungi grow on the planet? When humans eat it, they have this incredible insight into existence or self. Uh, fascinating. Yeah. Well, what's your, you know, if you were to reach and, and say, you know, what is it? Because your perspective on this might be even better than the average layman at the very least. So what is your perspective on that? Are we wired for meaning? Why is, why are we wired to take a significant moment and use that as a life altering transformative experience? The big question is, I, I it, it does suggest we're wired for meaning. I mean, clearly we are. Yeah. Uh, again, you know, and, and everyone, you know, the, you know, Maslow called it a peak experience. Mm -hmm. you know, Rudolf Otto called it numinosity, which Jung also used, Carl Jung used the word numinous. Um, Richard Buck, in a great book that I recommend to all your listeners, called Cosmic Consciousness, written in 1902 <laughs> and influenced William James's classic varieties of religious experience. Um, and I think one of the best books of last century describing this phenomena. And uh, he was a psychiatrist in Canada who had a spontaneous mystical experience. They wrote this incredible classic book showing how some of the greatest figures of history from Jesus to, to Buddha to Spinoza to artists and poets had these experiences. And then profiles regular people in a contemporary life who had these experiences. And so as Maslow points out, many people have peak experiences all the time. Children do all the time. Mm -hmm. Not a three-hour intense mystical experience like we have in our studies, but those transient moments of connectedness, unity. Um, and as Alan Watts once pointed out, it's pushed out of our system, it's pushed out of the culture, it's pushed down. There's no, there's no um, framework in which to talk about it. Yeah. Right? Uh, Huxley has a great book called Island where there, it's kind One of... One of my like, favorite books. Right? Shaped my life, yeah. But it's an open culture where you speak about the experiences. And so if a seven-year-old has a great experience, he's walking in the woods and he feels kind of, you know, a bit depersonalized and transcendent experience. And does he talk about that? Does he or she talk about that? So that framework is gone. Um, in terms of uh, why for me, it seems we are clearly. Uh, these medicines, you know, clearly, reliably in the right setting. And I want to talk about set and setting, very important for our research. In the right set and setting, in the interpersonally supportive, supported uh, environment, do promote or can promote these experiences like like those found throughout the ages. Um, 
It's incredible. It is. It's incredible. Do you fantasize, as someone who's read Island, do you fantasize about a potential move towards a more utopian, you know, culture? Something similar, obviously, but advanced based on the time and technology to <laughs> Huxley's Island? When I was 25, yes. Now, now, now I'm a little more, <laughs> a little more um, conservative in my uh, hope for that. Um, but I... Beyond our lifetime, of certain, of course, we all we all hope for an evolution of yeah. uh, our compassion. I mean, you know, this, this is not any breaking news here, but our capacity as humans to both create incredible cruelty, incredible unspeakable cruelty, and have incredible transcendent experiences is just stunning. Right. Right. So, of course, we hope for a continuation of, of going forward. Um, what I do hope for in a shorter time frame that hopefully I would live to see is like Albert Hoffman's vision, Albert Hoffman who discovered LSD, mm-hmm. that we have centers in terms of end of life and hospice where if these medicines are uh, rescheduled down the road uh, after many clinical trials to where people can go to these centers, have preparation, a number of modalities to prepare for the session, have the session or two, and then return back to their home changed, um, hopefully changed, and, and have a better death, uh, what we call a good death in palliative care. Mm-hmm. So I do hope for clinical, uh, you know, some clinical realities about this in our lifetime. In terms of the big picture, let's hope. Let's hope. Let's hope. What about on the, if we're talking fantasies, you know, certainly one of mine is to bring spirituality back to a, a revision of the church concept, you know, where... There's places where people can go, not just for clinical indications, but to have real, genuine mystical experiences, which, of course, can have a variety of clinical benefit. I think the separation of church and state in that regard, the church and body, you know, doesn't really make a lot of sense. A lot of these same things, you could be studying, um, you know, quitting cigarette smoking, but end up having a mystical experience and what caused what, you know, I mean, um, but yeah, having a place where you can go and, and reconnect spiritually because i think that is also another fundamental human drive is meaning and spirituality i think those things are entangled but a place where you can reliably find that um i think would be deeply deeply impactful and and a beautiful a beautiful thing to be able to offer humanity yeah and it likely was the genesis of religions yeah i mean Jung calls it an impulse that there's a human impulse for meaning and he says, and I'm going to mention this tomorrow in my talk, that by religion, we don't just mean creed. We mean a change in consciousness that ensued following an experience of numinosity, of mystical experience. Um, and that changes who we are. And then the church, or whatever spiritual lineage it is, provides a framework to stay connected or remind us of that through symbols and beautiful writings. And right, I mean, people don't stay in that experience all the time, but... Um, can they act as portals or frameworks to connect with that? That was the genesis, I would argue. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it gets watered down in a, over the years. Uh, yeah. What a, to change course a little bit, what a, you know, you've worked in palliative care a long time, and it's interesting to me, there's a, a uh, I think a palliative care nurse, Bronnie Ware, who wrote a book about the regrets of the dying. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but what have you seen um, as far as both in general palliative care and then also when people have these, um, you know, mystical experiences at the end, what is the thing they say like, oh man, I should have yeah. what? 
What is it that you see? So here we go again with, with, with the love stuff. I, I always have Joker, you know, sure. these scientists going around. Um, but we're following the data. And yeah. that's what they're telling us. So one of the things is that. Um, well, one is that th this may not be the only form we take. So there's some kind of comfort. Uh, and this might continue in some way. Some people have even have death, rebirth experiences in their room where literally a, a not-so-uncommon experience of a mystical experience on a psychedelic is a complete experience of death that one has died. Mm -hmm. and then it feels reborn. Now, if you're dying in this reality, that's a profound gift as well. Um, so, I mean, those existential insights occur. Um, forgiveness is a big one mm -hmm. we hear about. I should have forgiven him sooner yeah. or her sooner or whatever. Including people you would think people have a hard time forgiving. So, you know, someone could have treated them poorly 50, 60 years ago. And you hear forgiveness. Uh, forgiveness towards self. More acceptance of self. You know the stuff that's not new to this. These are new. These are new, right? Yeah. Epiphanies. Um, it almost confirms what we know already, but it's so hard to achieve. But they do achieve these in a very short time. Um, compassion towards others. People do change their lives, even in the final years of life. Uh, treat their bodies better. Sure. Become, you know, in our study, there was these weren't religious people per se. I mean, around half were self-identified as atheists, which is fine. It's just language, right? Sure. Um, but they became more spiritual in the sense of connected to some underlying essence that might occur. No, well, we're religious that. language. We cannot. It's just a language. You know, right. I, I often talk about Edgar Allan Mitchell's trip from the moon. Do you know the story of his no. mystical experience? Um, so he was an astronaut, just passed away recently. He lived out here in the Bay Area. And um, he was on the Apollo 14, uh -huh. coming back from the moon, looking at the spaceship window, seeing the moon and the stars and the sun, and began to have a, a naturally occurring mystical experience. It changed his life. He came back and, and founded an organization that for decades studied um, uh, transpersonal states of awareness. And he wrote a beautiful vignette about it that's out there to find, and I often quote him when I... I speak, and um, he had a classic experience, a mystical experience of a world connected. And he says, the moon, the stars, the sun, the spaceship, my partner sitting next to me in the capsule, we're all connected. We're made of the same stuff. But the point I try to delete from that is he says the same stuff, but language is where we get tripped up. Yeah, Star, star stuff, divine stuff, it doesn't really matter. When, when ineffability is one of the criteria, <laughs> right? right? The right. language is bound to fail. Right. Although I will say this, despite ineffability, what we're all stunned at, all of us doing this research, is the, is the effort and then capacity for these people to describe it in such beautiful ways. Yeah. And I never tire of reading their vignettes. They're such, they were the teachers. I mean, these people in the study, they're the study. We're just giving them a medicine and witnessing. They're incredible. Um, and their words are timeless. Timeless. Yeah. Uh, and um, so it is ineffable. But you must have a way to capture sure. ineffability, right? Look at That's art. music and art and poetry. And um, there was a woman I often quote. Um, she's still alive and doing great. She was an atheist. <laughs> I, lo I, lo I love quoting her. And she 
had an incredible mystical experience. She's still an atheist, whatever that means. But said in her words, I was bathed in love. And the only way to say it in the English language is to say I was bathed in God's love. Well, I'm an atheist, so I don't want to say that bathed in God, but there's no other language. And I love that contradiction. Sure. sure. And she's great. She's yeah. great. Um, so there's something about this wiring. It doesn't matter what language we use. Divine stuff, star stuff, the experience, interconnectivity of all of matter. And that's, if you're dying, it's an incredible gift. So um, it's been a, a, an honor to watch these people and to be with them. Um, and many, you know, cultivate spiritual practices. One yeah. woman began a, a Zen meditation practice in a very serious way. And she said it, it helped her connect with the experience she had on the psilocybin that day in, our, in the session room. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, I think the topic of what people are actually concerned with when they're dying and is very interesting to me because it's, you know, we still don't learn those lessons. I mean, no one ever says, man, I wish I would have got that person back good. Right. You know, I wish right. I would have exacted my revenge. <laughs> you know, I wish I would have worked a little harder. A little more money. <laughs> yeah, a little, I wish I just squeezed a little more money with my soul's effort. Like right. nobody says that, but nonetheless, that's we, what we're focused we on. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just say over and over again. And that's what we're stressed about. I wish I would have stressed more. No, <laughs> nobody says that. Says no one ever. It's you know? remarkable. It's, it's, I mean, the Buddhism, the three poisons of, you know, desire, greed, anger. I mean, you're right. Um, not new stuff, but, and you hear it told repeatedly. Uh, that's an interesting point, by the way. It brings up sustainability of these experiences. So you mm -hmm. just pointed out a great point. Everyone has these experiences in life. I'm going to change my ways. I'm going to, you know. Um, and near-death experiences do that as well. Uh, and then, you know, life is tough and fall back into the way of living that maybe you want to change well the ego self the identity self is tenacious it wants incredible. to exist incredible right right but you know hopkins and then we you know we're looking at people months out from the study uh and they appear to be sustained these effects i mean hopkins did a 14-month follow-up one of their studies and the over 65 percent i believe of the patients still re reported as the single most or top five most important spiritual or meaningful experience of their life um rick doblin who organized this conference we're at tracked down the survivors of the good friday study from 1962 in 1991 almost 20 years later and the survivors still reported that experience that one psilocybin experience on these number of constructs transcendence, sacredness, unity, as really high, 70%, I mean, high numbers, versus the controls who said it wasn't that important or meaningful. So it appears to sustain, and that's an incredible thing to understand. Yeah. What about is sustained? Is it the memory of it? There's something changed in the architecture of our consciousness. Um, are these insights so powerful? And they are. You could recall the last time you... First time you fell in love, you could tell me probably when that was, or when, if you had a child, or when the moment the baby was born, that experience. This has that kind of meaningfulness. It kind of uh, gets rooted in, in memory in a way that is transformative, and that we're still hoping to learn more about. It's 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 incredible. Yeah, well, and then the ability for uh, that's why I think it's so cool you're doing this with religious leaders because they have each will have their own framework and way right. to kind of translate this in their own lexicon and provide even more symbol and metaphor in ways that we can kind of 
talk about these things. And then then on the other side, in the kind of crowdsourcing side, I know I've spoken with, you know, Jamie Wheel and Stephen Kotler just wrote the book Stealing Fire. Great book. Mm. And they talk about uh, something that's developed called the hyperspace lexicon. Right. And this is a collection of terms that have developed out of, you know, really kind of the burning man culture and the psychedelic culture that's developed to talk about experiences that formerly didn't have words or didn't have other, you know, ways that people could express it. And it also serves a second purpose, which is if someone's having this experience, you can feel like I'm the only one in the world that's ever had this, which can be frustrating and also sometimes lead to unnecessary self-importance. Like I've just come down from the mountain, but then you can look up in this dictionary and be like, Oh, that's this thing. That's this thing. Yeah, this is exact thing is what I'm describing. And then that ends up forming a sense of unity and kind of makes you feel part of a community and also not like, holy shit, I've got to write the new Bible. Right. You know right. what I mean? Which is, and one of the things that I've found is I get sometimes people know that I've had a bit of experience with psychedelics. So I'll get weird calls or texts sometimes late at night from an unusual source. And I'm like, oh, I know what's going on here. You know, something's happening. And it's generally you know, paranoia or some area, a common area where a psychedelic experience can go south, bad set and setting. And I want to talk about that. Yeah. It's, I mean, there are difficult experiences. <clears throat> no doubt. Especially when the set and setting is random. You know, right. you go to a party where everybody's drinking or doing Coke and then you're on mushrooms and then all of a sudden it's like you're in this weird environment and paranoia comes in. And when I, when I tell them this, they'll be describing something that very much just sounds like paranoia. People are out to get them. I'm like, Oh, well, I see what's happening. You're experiencing the classic and they go, the classic. I was like, yes, the classic, the classic negative experience on one of these things. And just hearing that it's like, Oh, okay. I'm not the only one and this reality. Isn't real. But without that, without that kind of understanding that I'm not alone, it can be really scary. It can be very difficult. And I wanted to return to that. um, I'm glad you put it up at this point. So these are not, um, we're talking about the transformative, incredible components of this, which are incredibly life-changing and, and death-changing in, a, in, the, in the one study. But um, the capacity for, to have profoundly difficult and challenging experiences as we go into our interior um, can't be understated, can't be overstated. <laughs> um, and, you know, we, we don't recommend this, obviously, recreationally. I mean, these are done in very careful settings. People are screened psychiatrically, medically. Um, there are a variety of psychiatric diagnoses um, that would put someone at risk to have this experience. Sure. And as you've pointed out, there are two, really three crucial uh, things to get in place before an experience, at least in our FDA-approved research. One is set. It's the mindset of the person, mm-hmm. who the person is, how they're prepared, how they understand it, expectations. The next is setting, how it's done, where it's done. This is in a very safe, supportive, living room-like setting with two professionally trained guides. Um, we spend a month working with them, preparing for it, presenting some guidelines, what to possibly expect if things get difficult, how to work with that. And the main advice or recommendation is to move into the experience, no matter how difficult it might be getting. As we have an encounter with ourselves or death or some difficult terrain that can come up, to move into it, to stay with it, the unfolding moment-to-moment change, and typically it transforms to something 
mm-hmm. teachable and insightful. Um, and then intention. Why are you doing that? Why is it being done? So think about difficult or as the street language, bad trips. It's people aren't screened. So there's a lot of pre-existing illness that we're not aware yep. of psychiatrically. Yep. Um, they're not trained properly, they're set. And then they're in some loud, you know, who knows sure. where they are, right? And so uh, incredible volume of stimuli coming in, confusing. Um, so uh, in that sense, they're, they're very, um, they're potentially dangerous in that sense. Yeah, it's a lot of risk. And also, you know, if you're taking it from Jimbo, random Jimbo, and you don't really know how much you're taking, and you don't really know the thing. dosing is way off. And also you have that thought like, maybe this is poison, <laughs> you right. know, like you, you, and it sometimes is sometimes, you know, unfortunately you will get the wrong thing or you right. will get too much and it do. can have disastrous effects. So it's not a completely illogical. Most of the time, like you said, you just need to be guided to work through these things that are coming up, but without the assurance that, okay, what I'm doing is safe. It's the right amount. I'm safe to go through, like it takes incredible courage on its own. And if you're worried about this other stuff, you you know, you may just come up a little bit short for what you need to actually make this a valuable experience. So I agree. It can't be overstated or said too much that, you know, preparing for this, this is psychic surgery and you don't go to surgery with some random person with a colorful shirt and a butter knife. You know what I mean? Like, Make sure you're doing this intelligently with Well, I, I want to be in the record surgeons. saying I don't recommend that at all. That's not yeah, what for we sure. do. They were our studies, obviously. Um, you know, for, for centuries, they were done within rituals, ritualistic contexts. Those were the surgeons of the right. time, right? Uh, so the recreational use is, 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 um, is potentially dangerous and uncertain. So we're delighted to be allowed to work within these supportive government-approved settings um, with potentially important medicines to help end-of-life distress, to help alcoholism, to help a host of issues potentially. Um, and let, let's see how it unfolds. Well, we have pretty good early indication yeah. how that's the, going to... The end-of-life stuff is really very How that's promising. going to unfold. And it, it, particularly with psilocybin, it's not so much um, what it's going to do, it's what it's not what it's not able to touch what psychiatric conditions is this not helpful for because early indications are really showing that if you reset the master motherboard in this certain way you know then a lot of downstream effects Mm -hmm. you know these the generation of mystical experiences or the increase in connectivity in the brain whatever your framework is the downstream effects are, are really wide ranging i mean you may go in to help yourself quit smoking but you may come out having met god you know, like, right. And what we're you. finding with this religious leader study, it's consistent with the end of the cancer study. Yeah. So two different populations, but the experiences aren't dramatically different. Right. Because as you're, as you're implying, the cancer patient comes in with the attention to help die better death, uh, have acceptance, have less fear. Uh, other studies come with different intentions. But often the experience is similar, right? Forgiveness, love, uh, the important things um, and often difficult encounters you know I, I should also point out I'd like to point out all the experiences are in mystical of nature right sure so every person in our research across the board UCLA Hopkins other sites around the world don't have mystical experiences all the time when given a, a compound like this um, they have a variety of levels that people could have with a compound like psilocybin one is simply an aesthetic experience you know, it feels pleasant Music sounds better when they hear it, right? Um, it's not particularly meaningful in sure. the end. 
then there's a very you know potentially complicated encounter with the self, kind of like an enhanced psychoanalytic inward journey of of our, our interior, our life. Um, so revisiting certain autobiographical information, past relationships, things you wish you did better and didn't. Um, so there's that, that can cultivate insight, but that's not mystical, but it's profoundly important as well. Sure. It's like a lot of psychotherapy squished, you know, squeezed into one. Uh, and then there's this, these larger, not larger, but these uh, other levels of archetypal or mystical experience that we're talking about, this transcendence, this sense of unity. Um, uh, these transpersonal states, but you know, no one knows what they're going to get, nor do we. We tell people we could cultivate um, intention, but we can't guarantee expectation. You know, we take sure. it in the best of settings. They'll be safe. You'll be safe. We're here. Um, the same person in the same setting with the same substance will reliably experience something different profoundly. every time. Profoundly. Yeah. Studies where there are two doses, two of, yeah. of psilocybin, four or seven weeks apart, um, have profoundly different experiences. And From transcendent to profoundly difficult and dark, and uh, I'm not sure what that was about, but I need to do some work. And then hence the, the, the need for psychotherapy integration, sure. to work with a, a trained guide and a therapist, try to understand and put together you know, what that was about. But yeah, there's no, there's no uh, guarantees here. And that's not like anything else in the psychopharmacological you know, arsenal that we currently have as if you're a psychiatrist and you pre prescribe something reliably, you're looking to get the same response like <laughs> every time, you know, you take a Xanax, generally right. you want the anxiety to be relieved in the same way. Right. But this is, this is not that game. This is a different thing. Well, just, you know, we don't know what it does exactly. The neuroscientists are doing great work. Uh, it involves serotonergic pathways and, mm -hmm. you know, certain parts of the neurochemical system that's being activated. But it seems to, you know, shift consciousness in a way and act, act as a portal to some deeper realm of unconscious activity. And that's incredible. Or non-local consciousness. Um, and it amplifies what's happening and we don't know where it's going to go. Yeah. And so, hence the need for preparation, our guides, a month getting to know them. The session is carefully planned. They wear headphones playing very um, a set of classical and, and soothing music. They wear eye shades to encourage to go within to themselves yeah. versus being distracted by uh, this consensus reality. And they spend a full day with us. And when they come emerge from the experience, by 5, 6 p.m., they're back in ordinary consciousness. And we stay with them, we talk with them, we check on them, we see them the next day for a, a follow-up session. So it's it's carefully orchestrated yeah. um, with a kind of respect for the shift in consciousness that, again, goes back millennia when these were used in various traditions. Sure. Have you thought about at a certain point to scale and the development of AI? I know they already have some very preliminary AI for, you know, soldiers for, that can basically check in. They build rapport. I forget the name of the AI engine that does it, but builds rapport, you know, asks some very basic questions, you know, and then leads them down some paths and some confidence building questions. I, I read about it in the book, Stealing Fire. I can't recall the exact details, but it's this kind of preliminary form of, you know, a psychiatrist, but as an AI. But have you thought about or, or looked into the implications that potentially there could be a merger there where instead of having to necessarily train, you know, presuming fast forward to the future, psilocybin becomes legal in the conditions of, you know, psychotherapy and, and having that requirement, but have 
an AI approved to basically guide someone through pump in the right music, measure pupil dilation, all of the heart rate variability, all of these metrics that even the best psychiatrist doesn't have access to and guide people down a path. Have you explored that Some in your mind? Singularity here. Yeah. We, um, I haven't. Uh, it's fascinating. We, we yeah. on that one. Yeah. It's, uh, it seems like that could be a potential where, you know, at that point then, because one of the, the models to scale that, that is hard is just training enough clinicians right. for this. Because the need, you know, you, you talk about all these things, any one of these things, alcoholism, you know, cessation of cigarettes, major depression, you know, PTSD, all, I mean, pff, all right, we're talking about a lot of the country now. And then you're going to need a lot of therapists. But if they were able to work in, and, you know, obviously you'll have to prove it in clinical study that with enough training, obviously guided by the wisdom of people like yourself, that you could coach AI and AI could learn well enough to be able to guide someone through. Well, then all of a sudden you have scale, you know, as presuming that right. you can produce the molecule right. in enough quantity, which we're, we're clever monkeys. I think we could probably figure that out. Right. And then all of a sudden shifts could happen amazingly fast. Island. Hey, no. <laughs> we made it. We made it, Tony. We made it to Island. You, you've got me. You're a year ahead. Uh, uh, I'm still stuck in the, the beauty of two humans having this experience together. Um, yeah. Oh, AI, we're about to reach some point, though, apparently, right? A couple of years. Yeah. I mean, it's... away from uh, a breakthrough in terms of where they are. Um, but I'm not the right person to talk about AI. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I don't. I'm not the right person either. But it's a it's definitely a, a field, especially with the initial initial application for the soldiers and them developing it. It's not right. fully smart AI like the like you see that's going to rapidly develop towards the singularity. Right. But it's it's intelligent enough that it has enough feedback engines and has enough options that it yeah. can. I guess the larger question is: Can we really replicate empathy? And that's support the, and the warmth and the essence of what it means to be human in a positive way. Yeah. And AI, and, and again, I have zero knowledge of where that's going. Um, but that's the that's the important part of these sessions, the the, the role of empathy and, and, as you say, holding the space, you know, being there and intuiting where the person is. I mean, again, we're just, much of the session, we're not doing that much if it's going well. Mm. They're lying down, having this incredible experience. Um, maybe a complex, difficult experience. And we're sitting there just observing and being with them without words, yeah. uh, trying to intuit where they are, when to check in, how to support them. Um, I don't know how that happens in AI, but uh, again... And it won't ever uh, be quite the same, uh, right? right? Because right. you could hold an AI robot, you're never going to get an oxytocin response. Right. You know what I mean? Right. There's the, the energy that you can actually measure from the heart right. field. It's not, this is not something woo-woo. Like, it's right. measurable. Yeah. There's yeah. a measurable energy field emanating from the human heart right. or the core like you're not going to be able to duplicate that but you might be able to duplicate some pretty good guidance because people can have ex solid experiences on their own you know potentially but there there will always be a space i'm not one of those people that says ah oh, technology will figure it all out because there's something special and ir irreplicable about humanity i would think so <laughs> I hope so. Maybe we're wrong. I certainly hope so. You know, I feel like, so, but I'm biased. I'm human. So yeah, right. It's, right. It's sort of like with this. I mean, the, the the research neuroscientifically is wonderful. Yeah. But will we? Uh, will there be a biological reductionism where we know exactly what's causing this mystical experience? I'm not sure. I mean, it'd be, we're going to learn more over the next decades. Yeah. I mean, and these scientists doing the work are incredible. The brain science stuff. Um, you know, if I put you in a PET scan, an MRI, some kind of imaging machine, 
and show you pictures of things you love or people you love and certain parts of your brain, as they say, light up, get activated. It's more complex than that. Um, does that mean we can harness and bottle? No, right? There's a mystery how it gets, right? Yeah. What is love? So um, Maybe correlations, variety of correlations, that I think, but yeah. not causation. It's a, that I think we are doing already. And yeah. I think the neuroscience will lead there um, because uh, it's, um, it's the final frontier, isn't it? Consciousness. Yep. I'd say so. And a good one. A good one to explore. I agree with you on that. Yeah, I'm, happy we're, uh, I'm happy we're in this field. It's the only one to I explore. like the ocean, too. I like space, but consciousness space to me is, is the most interesting. But this is... Actually, I'm going to show a slide tomorrow of the Edgar Mitchell thing and the planets and the moon and outer space travel is incredible. But the most complex, beautiful journey is the one in the interior. Indeed it is, my and, friend. And mapping out that landscape. So... Um, Beautiful. Yeah. Anything you want to point people to? Anything, uh, any awareness of any published works or any websites or anything that people can go check uh, out? Not right now. I mean, I think I'd like uh, people to understand that we did publish these findings in December of 2016 in the Journal of Psychopharmacology, and they were groundbreaking results along with Johns Hopkins showing that one dose, one psilocybin session produced incredible results, upward of 80% reductions in depression, anxiety, and, and a host of distress measures um, in people with cancer. And I, I think from that, this promise for these medicines and this research and more clinical trials to really establish, for, further, further establish safety and efficacy, um, but also the lessons learned from it, that we can, we have the capacity to die better deaths. As we say in palliative care, kind of a strange combination of words, a good death. Uh, with integrity, meaning, um, and that's within reach, as difficult as it sounds. Yeah. And people without these medicines have good deaths too. Palliative care in hospitals has been doing this for years. Yeah. There are ways to have meaning-making um, experiences. And research shows that meaning at the end of life and transcendence are buffers against existential distress. And so that those findings lay the rationale for our research. Then how do we cultivate meaning and transcendence? Maybe one possible way is through these medicines that induce these mystical experiences. I'd like people to know that. And um, yeah. Beautiful. That's it for now. Well, thank you for your work, thank my you. friend. It's nice been a fun conversation. It's great. Yeah, thanks, Tony. See you, everybody. There are many challenges facing our world right now and a lot of causes that need our support. But I truly believe that the one thing that can do the absolute most good is the legalization of psychedelic medicines. You've heard some of the amazing stories with these amazing guests. It has the potential to cure trauma, depression, anxiety, addiction, these plagues that our society is suffering from and will continue to suffer from unless we can bring a cure. The opportunity for us to fund these clinical trials and potentially legalize psychedelic medicine is right in our hands. It's not that much money. We just need a little bit of support. I set up a page at thecureisnear.com. Once again, that's thecureisnear.com. Absolutely anything helps. You can donate five bucks. You can just share it with somebody who has five bucks. You can split five bucks and each give 250. It doesn't matter. They need our support. It's not that much more money left and we might be able to have the tool that can start to cure the world. So please check it out out of curiosity, out of interest, out of love, out of compassion, for whatever reason, just check out the page, thecureisnear.com, and see if you can find it in your heart to help us out.